This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. The important piece is that the clinicians don't have to make allocation or triage decisions at the bedside, um, and that allows them to do their job and do what they do best, which is just take the best care of the patients that they possibly can. One of the most difficult problems facing hospitals and health systems today is scarcity of key medical resources. Unfortunately, blood product shortages are not uncommon, and they present significant challenges for patient care. Our guests in this episode developed a specific set of recommendations and a protocol for their hospitals to deal with these situations. They've also worked to establish a standard approach across their geographic region, which a lot of locations have not really been able to accomplish. We hope their insights and work can inform other ethicists, hospitals, and cities looking to develop similar protocols. Our guests in this episode include Dr. Paul Hutchison, who is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois, just outside Chicago. He's also one of the clinical ethicists at Loyola. Dr. Kathy Neely is a physician and an ethicist at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. And Leah Eisenberg is the Director of Clinical Ethics Consultation Services at UI Health, which is part of the University of Illinois at Chicago system. Leah is also an attorney and a visiting clinical associate professor in the Department of Medical Education. My name is Beckett Grimels, and this is Ethics Lab. What caused you to start thinking about a new approach to allocating blood products during a shortage? Paul, let's start with you. This became a question for us because of the national blood shortage that occurred uh, during the COVID pandemic. What we learned from talking to our blood bank colleagues was that some of the problems that they actually have been encountering for quite some time on a day-to-day basis were exacerbated during COVID because there were far fewer opportunities for people to donate blood. And as a result, the a number of blood products on the shelf was even even lower than it had been pre-pandemic. Kathy, anything you would add to that? The blood bank directors were coming to the medical ethics program and saying, help us, do not let this happen again to us. It was awful. Um, and, and as I cast about, wondering, there's got to be something out there that we can appropriate and embellish on, I happened to ask Paul. <laughs> and he said, yes, I'm working on something. And then Leah joined us. There were the three of us um, all, all on the same quest. So this work started during COVID-19, but it's certainly broader than that. When else would this apply? What kind of situations could you use this protocol for? Yeah, I think what we do know is that some jurisdictions, uh, different countries, different states have explored this. And those that have have really focused on um, mass casualty events. I think what COVID made apparent to us um, and from actually listening to our blood bank colleagues is that um, what they're experiencing in the blood bank isn't just related to mass casualty events. These are day-to-day problems that they're constantly um, having to address when they have a a small number of of units of platelets available for transfusion, and they're forced to adjudicate which patients have the greatest need. And so while COVID brought this more to the forefront, it's really been a problem that has 
been considered for, for many years. At some point in the other protocols, the decision gets shifted to a committee or to a group of people who perhaps have unconscious bias in either the type of patient that might receive this blood or the relationships that they have with the requesters for the blood product. And as soon as you introduce the possibility of this unconscious bias, um, protocols are probably unfair to some extent. No protocol will be perfectly fair. And I think we acknowledge that there's certainly shortcomings in our protocol that don't address disparities in the system, um, particularly racial and ethnic disparities in the healthcare system that really apply very uniquely to the blood product problem. But um, the protocol-centric piece is, is, the main, is the main difference. I think part of what makes it different just overall is, is just the approach and thought of what is the most ethical and just way to think about blood allocation. And it's not that we're saying, oh, these triage teams, they're full of bias and terrible people. We're saying that we, everyone's, everyone has bias and that, that just that structure lends itself, it makes it easier for unconscious bias to shine through. Like, I want my doctors to be advocating heavily for me, which is exactly why the doctors should not be in charge of how to allocate the blood throughout the hospital. A lot of the other protocols, they rely on either the national healthcare system or larger jurisdictions declaring when there is a blood shortage. And in reality, in the majority of the United States, the determination of whether or not an institution is in a contingency standard of care or a crisis standard of care, it's really made at the institutional level uh, in many ways. So an institution can figure out the average daily utilization of each component based on their patient population and what they typically encounter um, uh, in their day-to-day care of patients. They also can know if there is a massive transfusion request, how filling that request would affect other patients that they still need to care for. And so what we're proposing is very specific criteria on where to set those thresholds. So an institution can know based on what's on the shelf, whether they're in contingency standards of care or crisis standards of care. And by moving from conventional to contingency to crisis standards of care, the way that the institution will conserve blood products and the amount of blood product supplied to any one patient can be modified to reflect the degree of crisis. Usually blood is given in the healthcare system as part of a package deal. Many interventions are being deployed to prop that patient up while they move toward recovery. And it's impossible to know if the blood given to a different threshold level of hemoglobin or with a longer frequency between dosing, how much of a difference is that really going to make? And the protocol we've been working on is much more attuned to that nuance of clinical medicine. The other unique aspect of our protocol is the fact that if a surgery is about to take place that is expected to be um, a high transfusion request surgery, 
the blood bank, looking at the protocol, can notify the surgeon and let them know how much blood they will be allocated for that surgery. The surgeon has to take that information into account when determining whether or not they're able to perform the surgery. So this certainly would put some sort of guardrails on performing elective surgeries. And if the surgeon does not anticipate being able to complete that surgery with the amount of blood that would be allocated for them, they may not be able to perform that surgery. Seeing that these sort of chronic shortages or chronic low levels of blood products seem to be what's going to be happening for the at least near to medium term future to how to just on a regular basis, hopefully not too regular, uh, deal with having more need than product. Some of these surgeries can consume between 100 and 150 units of product. And if you only have 20 units of platelets on the shelf, it is it is conceivable and can easily occur that that one transplant eats up that hospital's daily supply of platelets. Um, we see a real problem in the decision on who gets those products. And this is a concern that actually this is happening right now. And as we're discussing this, there are probably decisions being made in blood banks across the country where the the poor blood bank director is actually calling the physicians who ordered the blood products and asking them, how much does your patient really need this blood product right now? Because uh, we we are really short. And all it takes is one really bad, one really extreme event to um, to take a lot of those units off the shelf. And so when that happens, uh, we need some sort of protocol for, for addressing that to take it out of the hands of the blood bank director. How did you develop the guidelines? There was a time where uh, our supply was getting low and the blood bank director reached out to me um, and I started compiling information. But sort of once we got to a little better level with blood product, I think uh, just it's the nature of, of busy hospitals where um, people become less interested. They think, well, we're past that now. Uh, we, we don't let, let's just hope for the best. And then I think for our, our, our protocol being really very protocol centric versus, you know, this triage team centric, um, at least at my institution, there was both some, some, satisfaction with that in terms of it's not going to, you're not going to be put on the spot as a physician to, hey, choose. But I think uh, conversely, like so much of ethics is, um, you know, we want help. We, this is too hard. We want help deciding, but also we feel nervous when we're not going to be the ones deciding. But I think there's some nervousness about the fact of, is that going to really be fair for for my patients? Is that going to constrain the way I practice medicine? The development of our protocol obviously started with a desire to move away from the possibility of bias, but there needed to be clarity and it, it had to be extremely obvious when you moved from one standard to the next. And so what I had to do was actually talk to our blood bank director and ask about averages and ask about when some of the, what were some of the events that would actually trigger panic on the part of the blood bank. And then when I started to get a handle on what some of these numbers were, it started to make sense that 
at some points we had these these massive transfusion requests that were going to s- suck the blood bank dry and that some patients were going to actually suffer from that and not have access to the blood that actually all went to one patient and so and actually coming up with the strategy for determining the thresholds i had to start with some um general numbers that the blood bank gave us but once I was able to sort of start plugging numbers in, it made sense where you would where you would set the thresholds. And to be clear, the thresholds for one institution will not be the same thresholds for another institution, even within the same geographic region. So what Kathy and, and Leah are going to be dealing with will be different than what Loyola is dealing with because we get different a different supply of blood by based on some algorithm um, that our blood supplier uses to determine who gets what supply. So it sounds like there's a lot of flexibility, even though you might have more or less the same guidelines across institutions because of the way they're structured, it's going to play out differently at each place because you get different allocations of of blood. And different patient populations. There are some surgeries known to be very high blood transfusion requiring, like liver transplants, like COVID lung transplants. They are inherently bloody. And an institution that does those will have a very different um, play out of the protocol um, in contrast with another institution which doesn't do those procedures. What obstacles did you encounter in that process and what lessons did you learn? I imagine it wasn't the smoothest of all possible discussions across multiple institutions, but would love to hear what you learned through that. In terms of some of the barriers, I think... um, so, you know, it's it's hard not to talk about this without talking about the whole ventilator allocation discussion. Um, and I think a lot of us see that that discussion maybe should have occurred before COVID became an issue. Um, but on the other hand, uh, hospitals are busy. We always have a lot to do. And it's also just, it's a really hard conversation to have. We don't want to think about when we have more patient need than means to care for patients. A challenge in a contingency or crisis situation is for those of us who consider ourselves bedside clinicians, as Leah pointed out, championing our patient and sometimes our program. By definition, scarcity means not everybody's going to get what they need. And To be fair, that misery has to be somewhat fairly distributed. (laughs) Um, And that, I think, is the challenge in in pitching a policy which asks any of our colleagues to imagine such an uncomfortable situation and then pledge themselves to it and say, yes, I agree to abide by this protocol should I ever be called upon? And I trust all my colleagues and all these other departments and programs will do the same. This also allows bedside clinicians to advocate for their patient. And they can advocate for their patient and they can request the blood and they can do everything that they need to do in order to take the best care possible of the patients to whom they're assigned. It's built into the protocol. And that doesn't mean the protocol is perfect. And there will be uh, probably plenty of opportunities to 
to tweak protocol to make sure that it reflects the values and priorities of the institution as it is integrating a protocol into uh, in, in real time into patient care. The important piece is that the clinicians don't have to make allocation or triage decisions at the bedside. Um, and that allows them to do their job and do what they do best, which is just take the best care of the patients that they possibly can. How did the group consider justice when developing the guidelines? So if you think about the ventilator allocation um, and how complex that was and how ethicist physicians all over the country were thinking of it, and still it was so challenging um, to, to try and um, to try and reach some equity in terms of people who have access to healthcare, people who can get to the hospital, uh, all of those things. And you think of how difficult that was. And for blood, it's it's a hundred times more complicated. A unit of blood is often not the like this is the the do or die. Um, that it's a whole complex situation of what a patient needs. Um, and also, you know, a huge thing for equity is. You know, ventilator generally for adults is one size fits all and blood products are not like that at all. And um, underserved patient populations are often the patient populations where we have less blood product that can, you know, go to certain populations. It's not like with the ventilator. If you don't use it today, it's fine tomorrow or the day after or next week. And blood is not like that. You know, it's possibly if you're trying to conserve too much, then you're going to end up wasting it. From the get-go, justice was absolutely at the center of our ethical quest, right? Um, it, it Population ethics, ethics in the context of crisis and scarcity, it really does take that shift away from the patient and patient-centered care and has to think about everyone. So we were, we were really struggling with that. And to some extent... This protocol, I think, reflects one of the most arguably pure ways of allocating, which is sort of the lottery. Um, We kind of spread everything around in equal fashion. And as the patient and their condition and personal considerations, professional considerations, who's going to do well, all of those are sort of set aside. And we're letting the blood be allocated as fairly and evenly across the board as we can, no questions asked. What we are just not able to do, which is something that I don't think anybody is able to do, whether you're talking about ventilators or blood, and that's fix our healthcare system and fix inequities and fix injustices that exist by virtue of the fact that we live in a country where not everyone has health care. We can't fix all of the problems, but what we know we can do is make sure that there's certainly no personal biases on any one individual that would affect the ability of any one patient in the hospital to receive a fair shot at getting that blood transfusion. And that, as Kathy, as you mentioned, that was absolutely central to pursuing a protocol that was protocol-centric rather than triage committee-centric. How does your protocol account for vulnerable populations? I'm thinking like racial or ethnic minorities who may have difficulty accessing blood products, especially from donors within their community. 
there are some populations that perhaps we can provide improved ability to access some of these resources, particularly I'm thinking of sickle cell patients who have very hard to match blood types and that who you may need to actually regionally seek out blood products that are a match for them. And these are patients who often um, have chronic transfusion requirements. And so we do have an aspect of the protocol that actually identifies some of these hard-to-match groups, particularly the sickle cell patients, and making sure that hospitals talk to each other and try to identify um, units of, of blood product that they can somewhat be sequestered by certain hospitals who know that these patients will have these chronic transfusion requirements. Another population that we might think about um, are, are women of childbearing age and, and pregnant women who, who might ultimately suffer uh, peripartum hemorrhage. Um, you know, th- these, this is a population where you potentially could have uh, two individuals who are affected by the need for a blood transfusion. Um, and so you could conceive of a, a part of this protocol that might hold some O negative blood in the emergency room for a, a massive transfusion request in the event a um, a, a pregnancy um, uh, requires a, a, tr- a transfusion. Our proposed protocol is just the beginning. It's just the foundation. And what we would really love is for other institutions to pick it up and develop it, not just make it their own, but make it better and export it all over again for everyone else to consider. I think there are many reflections and tweaks that can happen um, that will improve it. In an ideal world, we would come up with a protocol that is entirely algorithmic, that you can plug in the blood product available, you can plug in what your anticipated needs are, and the answers are spit out, and everything is as fair as possible, and there's literally no bias or injustice in the system. But I think we all have to recognize that there are other competing ethical claims. And certain patients have competing ethical claims that it is entirely reasonable to acknowledge and deviate from a perfect algorithm. And so I think some of the flexibility that we have to build into a protocol is realizing that there needs to perhaps be some clinical judgment And there has to be some recognition of competing ethical obligations other than merely utilitarianism. And that demands that you have some flexibility in your system. Why can't we use what we did for ventilators? (laughs) And Lee, you've given two really good answers for that. But anything else to add? Why why can't we just take what we used had before and apply it to this? I mean, I think part of it is because what we had for ventilators, we now know is not that great. You know, again, we did the best we could at the time and it was necessary. Um, but we know that the way it treated people with chronic illness and disability was maybe not uh, entirely warranted. Um and then there's all the issues of, of that blood products are much more individualized in terms of uh, what your blood type is, um, you know, how much you're going to need. Anything to add, Kathy or Paul, on that one? 
Yeah, I think our, our ventilator protocols were based on, of course, a mass casualty scenario, right? Um, and again, we think that the far more common future blood shortage scenario will be maybe more about not enough supply or the supply chain falling apart or people getting too sick or to show up to donate blood. It, it will be a different kind of scenario. How does preparing a protocol in advance of scarcity help clinicians in the moment? How do you think that kind of guideline there helps ensure that just allocation of resources? I would say if you've designed a protocol that's gone up the chain of command, has approval at various levels in your institution of institution leadership, and that the content experts have looked at this and said, to the, to the best of our ability, we think this is the best we can do right now, not actually living through the period of scarcity. You're, you're going to have at least initial trust from the clinicians that we've done something and done some preparation for this. No protocol is going to be ready for prime time until it's been tested in prime time. And so there's always going to be skepticism about whether a protocol can work, even among the people who are designing the protocol. If you can do this ahead of time and you can get as many people's eyes on it as possible and as many institutions as possible, perhaps in your region, you can at least start the process by saying we we have something here and then absolutely make iterative revisions to it based on its success or its failure. And I think even when people are doing their very best, when you have, um, when a situation is emergent, uh, you need to get together a protocol and make decisions right away, that it's just hard to be as thoughtful, to get as many stakeholders involved, to do troubleshooting, um, and then to really disseminate it out to everyone. Whereas you say, we don't need this yet. We would love to never need this, but we're going to have a plan and people are going to know about the plan. And if we get to that space, we're prepared and ready to go. Right. I think you're, you're looking at three people at three different institutions who were, were helping to build the airplane as it flew. <laughs> and, and that was awful. <laughs> this is so much better, so much more reassuring to have something on the shelf ready to roll. Eisenhower, I think, said, plans are useless. Planning is essential. Yeah. Ooh, nice. What benefit do you think there is for having an approach that spans different hospitals and across an entire community? Although we all are in Chicago, uh, we have very different hospitals, different patient populations, um, and instead of us each having to, you know, sort of reinvent the wheel, it really seems smart to let's make a plan that works in all the hospitals, um, you know, the large and the small and the urban and the safety net and all of those, um, not only because we can learn from each other and troubleshoot for each other, um, but also then as a community, we can say, oh, I, I know how the blood allocation goes because we've worked on it together. We have something similar. From, from a justice perspective, um, being admitted, being picked up by an ambulance because 911 was called from one side of the street rather than the other side of the street should not matter, should not dictate 
whether or not you get a blood product when you get to the hospital or any other medical resource. So if we can all agree on a general approach, even though the specifics at each hospital will be slightly different, I think that's one other way of encouraging or promoting the provision of justice to our patients. And I would add, along with justice to our patients and fairness for them, wow, in the midst of a crisis, how good to know that the entire community, the entire moral community, if I may, of medicine is all playing by the same rules. There's no one up the street gaming the system with their blood supplier to get the goodies You've decided, oh, no, 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 we're going to be really fair about over here. What a, what a great thing to trust everybody all the way around and have that agreed upon in advance. If a hospital leader or an ethicist is looking to create a similar protocol, what advice would you give them? <laughs> Start now. Take a look at what we've written tear it apart, shred it, and put it back together again, but it's a great place to start. Get an interdisciplinary team that includes clinical experts alongside of committed leaders and decide you're going to make it happen. When you start thinking about these allocation plans, any scarce resource and alloc- scarce resource allocation plans, you need to really just acknowledge that when we're using these, it means there's scarcity, and that means that some people are going to go without. And that should and does feel terrible for all of us. And just to acknowledge that, because I feel like uh, some people are going to think like, oh, I still don't feel great about it. So it's not right. Um, and definitely you should continue thinking about it. But, but it is appropriate for us to feel like, I really don't want to have to triage things. I don't want people to go without, you know, but that's baked into having a, a scarcity of any resource. Unfortunately, some people may be adversely affected by a protocol that has ceilings on for how much blood a particular patient can receive. But without ceilings, more patients could die. And so it's finding the balance. And that's where the the revision and the modifications um, will have to take place. Um, Hopefully, it'll never have to come to be that any of these protocols would ever actually be used. But we, we do know that these kinds of decisions are already being made. And so as an institution is starting their process, identifying priorities and its own institution of values, I think, has to be the first step. How are these decisions made currently? If there isn't a protocol like the one you've developed, what does it look like? I'll give a, a really quick example. When I attend on the medical ICU, I come in in the morning and, and inevitably one or two patients received a blood transfusion for a hemoglobin of 6.9 because by convention, we tend to transfuse for hemoglobins less than seven. That's not a really good use of clinical judgment. Like If you checked that next hemoglobin for that same patient without getting a blood transfusion, it might be 7.4. There's always some range and um, variability in our, in our blood draws. And a patient with a hemoglobin of 6.9 probably doesn't have any different prognosis than the patient with the hemoglobin of 7.3. And so the blood bank having to reach out to clinicians and try to figure this out in real time the problem with doing that is that you have some very convincing clinicians who will be very adamant about advocating for their patient. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when an 
when the advocacy of a, of a specific physician then affects other patients who may not get their blood, who may have a greater need, that's where the bias and some of the unfairness starts to emerge. And so unfortunately, the state of affairs right now is the blood bank just sort of handles it and tries to adjudicate it themselves. And um, we don't think that's particularly fair to them or to other patients. Thank you to our guests. And as always, thank you to our listeners. My name is Beckett Grimmels, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.